Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, 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 we're back with Set the Tape Rewind, your fortnightly dose of entertainment fun time. I'm Tony Black, joined as always by Steve Norman, and we're discussing cinematic chills as conjuring spin-off The Nun prays she'll get a good box office opening. We ponder some of the delights heading our way at the London Film Festival and contemplate just why Jack Ryan has never become a major American action hero on either the big or the small screen. Matt Latham is back again with another cassette tape before I'm joined by author Duncan Barrett to discuss his slice of World War II social history, Hitler's British Isles. So let's do this, shall we? Okay, we're kicking off uh, this uh, latest Set the Tape Rewind, in which I'm finally back after being away for ages, uh, for various different reasons I won't bore you with, with uh, films. And um, we've got a couple of things to talk about uh, uh, this week. And the the, the main one is that we've got another uh, addition to the what has become known as the Conjuring franchise coming out this weekend. We've got uh, The Nun, which is another spin-off from the original first two Conjuring films. Uh, and uh, in fact, we've just had a, uh, a a look back at The Conjuring, go up on uh, setthetape.com. Uh, the Conjuring 2, I should say. I think we've had a look back at The Conjuring as well. So we've got some some stuff up there about that. But um, yeah, it, it's 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 a film I'm going to check out. Are you, are you are you much of a fan of, of The Conjuring horror franchise, Steve? Not overly. I've seen the first one and thought it was probably one of the better modern kind of horrors um, that's been probably more you know more mainstream modern horrors. But no, I've not seen the second one. But for me, it just seems that there's a lot of horror films now um, that end up being franchises and mm. uh, and end up being uh, dim- uh, you know diminishing returns. They always seem to get less scary as they go on even if the first one um not saying the conjuring isn't scary but in in these kind of series of films the first one always tends to be the scariest whether it is or not that scary and it all just seems to go downhill from there and you kind of wonder why studios keep bothering but well, yeah 
Maybe I'll be wrong in this case. Maybe the nun will will buck the trend. Well, it it looks it looks quite scary. I mean, it, from what I've seen, it looks pretty. You know, it's set in like the uh, like a Romanian castle village. It's very got a very Dracula vibe about it. You know, it's set in like the fifties, so it's a bit period. She she was really terrifying in the Conjuring Two because that's where you first see the nun character. She pops up in the Conjuring Two, which is a take on the uh, the Enfield hauntings, which is a real life uh, case. In the seventies yeah, or whatever, I've heard about that. Wasn't I think there might have been a documentary on Sky about that a year or so ago. But yeah, yeah, that was a... I, th- I think there was, and there was a drama with Timothy Spall as well playing. Um, I think it was Morris Gross who was the actual investigator, and I think he, I think he's in The Conjuring Two as a character. I can't remember, not played by Timothy Small, Spall, but they did a, a yeah, a, a drama, and I think yeah, a documentary. So it's it's been covered a fair bit. I mean, it's it's. A, Fucking terrifying! Sorry, it's a terrifying like like real life case. I mean, if you've ever read anything about it, like it's it's really scary because it yeah. it sounds pretty genuine, you know. In particular, this voice captured on tape of like an old man talking through a girl, which is chilling. And the film, The Conjuring Two, is actually there's a big debate as to which is the scarier one. The, the first Conjuring, which is um, which is all to do with Annabelle the doll, who then gets spun off into two films. Um, or the second one. I, I need to go back and watch them both. I, I was pretty terrified by the first one. Uh, I think they're both really good. Uh, but the second one was, was creepy as well. It left me a bit cold. Yeah. So they're, 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 I'd say they're two of the better like horror films in recent times. But then, you, you know, you talk about um, Diminishing Returns. We've always had that, though, haven't we? I mean, going, if you go back to, like, Friday the 13th and Halloween, they used to do yeah, tons um... of sequels, didn't they? But now you've got stuff, that, you know, Paranormal Activity. How many yeah. sequels that spin off? And was it four or five in the end. And the first one I thought was was brilliant. It was really quite innovative and different and genuinely scary. And then everyone off uh, one after that is sort of just more of oh, yes, yeah. this, this this again. Mm. I'm trying to think of all the other kind of franchise off my head now which i can't but they, you know it seems like quite a lot of horror films now will get a sequel or a trilogy but and they get prequels and, like like did you, did you yeah. see um i haven't seen it but did you see they did like a a, a, a texas chainsaw massacre one called leatherface yeah uh and you think oh you just milk stop milking it i mm. mean why do why do you need to know leatherface's backstory <laughs> You don't, that's the whole thing. I mean, yeah. they obviously do it for money reasons, don't they? I mean, all the a lot of these horror films, they can make, they tend to be able to make horror fairly cheaply, and they always mm. tend to make money, you know, don't they? So that I suppose that's one yeah. of the reasons horror quite often does well, you know, fairly mainstream horror. I've stopped watching horrors that aren't rated an eighteen mm. Mm. because I just don't find the the ones that are fifteen scary enough. Mm. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them just seem to be 15s now to get people in the door, to get more people in, and they perhaps tone it back a bit so you don't get a full-on, you know, really horrific horror. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, always, they're always doing that now. I mean, that's why the um, Luca Guagino, I can never say his surname, Luca Guagino's um, remake of Suspiria, the Dario Argento giallo film, might be might be good, because I bet, I bet that'll be an 18 um, and that, yeah. that'll be, that that could be pretty good in that sense. But I mean, I, I I've always been more of a a fan of. I've never been a massive fan of like blood and gore. I've always been more. I like chillers. I like things that. May, I mean, that's why, I, like you, I like the first Paranormal Activity. Like, love the Blair Witch. 
I love. Um, yeah, that's why the first country. I like the Kundrins because they're they're not blood and gore. They're all they they're, they're genuinely just chillers, you know. And and yeah, it's it's for me. It's not so much sort of slasher films where it's all blood and gore. It's something that's more psychological, makes you really creeped out. Mm, yeah, like makes you might makes you like you've watched a horror film. You're about to go to bed, mm. but then you end up staying up watching repeats of Family Guy on ITV2 until you can get the horror film <laughs> yeah. out of your head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had I had that kind of experience with Paranormal Activity actually because I watched. I remember watching it on a laptop uh, at like half past eleven on like a November night, and I wasn't on my own in the house. I, I was living with my mum at the time, and she was next door asleep. But even though even though she was there by like one o'clock when I'd finished watching that, I was just a mess. There's no way <laughs> I had to just like put. On... I mean. Something funny. We uh, we watched it at the cinema when I was at university. Paranormal Activity, and then we just went home and watched ghost videos till three in the morning, and then no one could sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it. That's why it's a good horror film, though, because it's sort of you know that's the point. That's what it should be doing. It should be really yeah. sort of getting under your skin. And a lot of these, they don't. And I, you know, I'd say that about like the Kun- the Kundrian films. They do get under your skin a bit. And um, I found, I, I, I found. Hopefully, the nun will do the same. You know, so. We'll see, but it's it's definitely it's definitely continuing the conjuring conjuring franchise, and and you know yeah. people quite a lot of people liked Annabelle Creation last year, which I thought was, I thought wasn't bad, it was certainly better than the first Annabelle spin-off. So you know, fingers crossed, it, it'll be good. But that's that's coming out. We should have a review of that up. And as I say, we've got the uh, con- uh, conjuring lookbacks you can find on setthetape.com. But um, Apart from all this, and I mentioned Suspiria earlier, and this is going to factor in at the uh, London Film Festival, which is um, kicking off uh, very soon. And um, our uh, writer, Callum Petch, is going to be there, and he's, he's done a preview, which is on the site right now. Um, have, you, have, you, have, you, have you seen much of what the lineup is, Steve, for this? No, not yet. I've not had much of a chance to see what's... Uh... What's happening at the London Film Festival? Mm, I mean, I mean, the big one is there's a big uh, there's a, the big premiere of Widows, which is Steve McQueen's latest, as of the guy who did um, uh, Twelve Years a Slave uh, and Shame with Fassbender, and and so this this guy's got a brilliant cast. It's based on like, the Linda Laplante book. So you remember Linda Laplante who used to do all those like ITV dramas of her books. Yeah, I think they did Widows back in the day, but they've they've remade that with a great cast. Um, so that's one. I think there's also the, uh, the Laurel and Hardy biopic with Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. That looks that looks fun. That, that's good casting, I think, for them to. Yeah. Um, so that that could be quite good. Um, and as I say, Suspiria is another one. But you know, it's 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 a pretty good film festival. I don't know. I mean, have you ever been? Have you ever done any film festivals or anything like that? Have you ever been to any of them? No, but I do live out on a limb, and <laughs> uh, you know, it takes me half an hour to get to anywhere, let alone a film festival. <laughs> um, the one, the one that they have in my local area is one that's going to have sort of big premieres. They occasionally have a few semi-interesting guest speakers or. Uh, there, but they—I mean, they do some quite nice outside screenings mm. of, of films. Yeah, that's about. I mean, they do well for the size they are, but it's not really kind of the big deal. And then the next nearest one, I probably had to travel for at least an hour. So, mm. no, not really the most viable thing for me. 
Yeah, we don't we don't get a fat lot in Birmingham. Either, not which... not not until not until you lot can start putting me up to travel to these things <laughs> and paying my expenses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we uh, that's that's the number one priority of set the tape. Let's be honest. Sending me off to film festivals, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> making Steve our roving reporter, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot more on um, the uh, London Film Festival, I think, uh, coming up from various people who are going to be there, I think. So uh, yeah, check out Callum's preview with uh, some really good stuff on on a real range of films. You know, I mean, Callum is a machine with these kind of things. I think he really gets to see almost all of it. So uh, check that out because it's uh, it's a good preview. That's on uh, setthetape.com hello everyone it's Latham here with the cassette tape let's talk about surprise albums or more specifically Eminem is one that he dropped last Friday Kamikaze is Eminem's 10th album and seems to be setting out with the one goal of calling out everyone who's ever ticked him off and said negative things about his previous album Eminem has always been at his best when he's been the angry young man calling out against his own issues it's not all been plain sailing and there are still parts of his lyrics that be, can be questionable, but his flow and his ability to manipulate rhyming and still paint vivid images and tell stories are still responsible for some of the best rap verses that have ever been written. But is Eminem now the old man sitting on his porch yelling at youngsters? In other genres, musicians with longer careers may tail off in their heyday, but they always seem to be held in some kind of high regard. Rap seems to be different. The older you get, the more you seem to be seen to stop rhyming and start producing and make way for the younger generation. In Eminem's case, it's a double-edged sword. His skills are no doubt improving, but his subject matter still seems to be about the same things. The Marshall Mathers LP2 is him looking back and trying to play off his magnum opus from over a decade ago. But since re- watching Anthony Fantano's review of Kamikaze a bit earlier, I am reminded that a lot of his best work he's done when he's reactive but he still manages to be able to try and get some proactivity in his lyrics and in his songs which I think Kamikaze does admittedly lack. I don't think he could ever really retire. Eminem made white rap a respectable thing and it appears that his next hurdle to jump might be trying to break off this older rapper stigma. Will he do it? I'm not sure. Finally the only album to be aware of in the next fortnight in this edition of Fast Forward is the Pale Waves debut, My Mind Makes Noises, which comes out on September the 14th. I do feel as if Dirty Hit, the record label behind Pale Waves, are trying to make the next Wolf Alice. Wolf Alice are a quartet influenced by the 90s grunge movement, in the same way that Pale Waves appear to be in- influenced by the 1980s, new wave movement kind of from like the cure the only worry i have with the album though is that i've got a sneaky suspicion that a lot of the singles that are on the album have already been released whereas with wolf alice we had the ep we had the major hit moaning lisa smile but then when the album came out a lot of the songs were new and we not heard them before and they took us by surprise here i'm a bit nervous i'm not too sure it's a shame because the singles that have been released have been so catchy and they've been brilliant and they're quite exciting. I hope I am proved wrong though, as I am really looking forward to the album. Until then, this has been The Cassette Tape. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, TV uh, now, and um, we're going to... We're gonna, we're gonna. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of gonna cheat a bit here because I'm gonna sort of blend this with some more movie chat, but it's relevant because we've just had on Amazon Prime land the uh, Jack Ryan TV series, which is starring John Krasinski as uh, Tom Clancy's CIA analyst character from his books. Um, obviously, he died a few years ago, Tom Clancy, but he wrote over years. Jack Ryan was probably his biggest, one of his biggest characters, or his biggest character that he wrote for years in his books. And uh, then w- went on to uh, books that went on to be films like Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, The Sum of All Fears, things like this. And now it's it's a TV series, uh, which I, I, I admit I haven't yet watched. It's very close. It's on my um, like you know my my list. I'm going to do it pretty soon. It's only eight episodes, uh, and you know I've been wondering about this for a while. Have you seen? Are you, are you very familiar with any of this, Steve? Any of this character, or, or you know these books or the films? Not overly, no. Um, I've not. I think I've seen some of all fears. Was that a Jack Ryan thing yeah. with Ben Affleck? Yeah, that's it. I've, I've seen. I've seen that. And other than that, um, I can't think of anything else I've really seen. To have, be honest, did you see Harrison Ford in in playing the character? Because he did. Ah, yes, yes, yeah. I have seen. He did Patriot yeah. Games and Clear and Present Danger. He did two in like the early 90s. Yeah. Um, and Patriot Games was all about the IRA, if I remember rightly. And he has to, he has to, it's a lot of it's, it's, it's one of those, I mean, I, I Patrick, Patriot Games is good, but it's got Sean Bean as the baddie, obviously. Like, <laughs> standard. Yeah. And it's got a lot of dodgy Irish accents, you know, and it's at that point where, you know, the IRA are the bad guys, and all this kind of thing, um, but it, it does have one of the best like action climaxes I think I've ever seen in a film. This amazing like boat chase at night with rain when it's pouring down with rain. It's really good. Um, yeah, it's fight on a boat, um, and then Clear and Present Danger, which is one of my fa- one of my favourite films. I love that film. It's really good. It's very different. It's all about like fighting against Colombian drug lords and like secret American ops going in and things like that. But the thing is, it's one of them that like. Harrison Ford only did two, and he was good in them, but people don't always remember it over things like, you know, Indiana Jones, obviously, or, say, The Fugitive, and stuff like that. And I think it's because he wasn't a traditional sort of action hero. He was, like, quite a bookish 
CIA guy. It wasn't like he wasn't like Bond, you know. He wasn't like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. He was more of a a guy behind a desk. Um, and that's why. Do you remember Ben Affleck in that one? He's quite shabby. Like he, yeah, he, he doesn't do all the slick shooting. Um, no. And I think I don't know. I don't know if people really knew what to do with that. But then, do you, do you remember Chris Pine did one called um, Shadow Recruit? Do you even remember this film? I don't remember it. No, no. <laughs> exactly. No, saying that um, Chris Pine did one does ring a bell now, but I can't think anything about it. it exactly, it was about four years ago, and it was it was Kenneth Branagh directed it bizarrely, and he was the bad guy in it, and it was. Um, it was called Shadow Recruit, and they and it's basically you know the origin, the origin story again. And he's a, he's more of an action Jack Ryan, and no yeah. and nobody went to see it like, and nobody liked it. <laughs> I mean, I went, I went to see it, and I thought it was pretty crap, really. And nobody remembers it now, and it, and and they try because they tried to make him into a sort of an American, not an American James Bond, but they tried to make it in make him into an action star. And it never mm. worked, and I keep wondering why. On paper, you've got like oh, the Hunt for Red October was another one where he, Alec Baldwin played him. Do you remember the Hunt for Red October with Connery as a Russian submarine commander? Have you seen that? Yeah, one? Um, I don't think I don't have seen it, but I know of it. Yeah, he's a Russian submarine commander who talks like Sean Connery, basically. <laughs> so he's like, "I'm a Russian submarine commander," <laughs> All the way through, and you're like, "Are you really? Are you sure?" Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's Alec Baldwin in that. And so again, he wasn't. He didn't really stand out in that. I keep just wondering why, why it doesn't take off. Like, because on paper, a character like this should should really surely, you know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe a lot of people have just read the books and they and they know. I don't know because you've got stuff like Jason Bourne that takes off, and it's a similar kind of thing. Mm. You know, it's not exactly the same, but it's, yeah. it's in the same ballpark, and that takes off. And you and yeah, you just wonder why one works and mm. one doesn't. Yeah, actually, people. you're right because the Bourne um, films again they came from books, and the books are. Re- have you ever read any of the Bourne books? They're, they're really hard work. No, they're like they're really dry. Yeah, quite they're quite dry and. You know, they're just a bit boring, to be honest. They're just a bit boring and, and old-fashioned. Mm. And, like, you, they managed to t- turn that into, you know, Matt, Matt Damon kicking ass. It just it just seems seems weird. But this new one does look like they're trying to do that. You know, John Krasinski, who was from The Office and A Quiet Place as well, he's he's, he's quite good. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've not seen A Quiet Place, but it does look interesting. But, I mean, yeah, with, with, with him... Um, it's going to take me a while to get take him, believe him as anything else as other than Jim from The Office. <laughs> it actually happened with Martin Freeman, who played the equivalent role in in the original Office. Like yeah. it took me a while to see him as anything other than Tim. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I, and for um, John John Krasinski doesn't doesn't really strike me as kind of an, an action star or action character. Although I've no. seen him in a, a few other things like that. What was the other? There's another kind of military. He was like a marine or soldier in something relatively recently. And oh, is it that bloody awful thirteen hours thing? It with... might have been. Yeah. Oh, um, that was. But terrible. it's sort of like I can't. You know how it takes a while to get your head around somebody being 
that kind yeah. of character. I think what was the show on Netflix recently? Was it called Safe? Um, it had the guy from Dexter in it, and me, <laughs> yes. and me trying to yeah. me trying to get my head around his British accent <laughs> took me about three episodes. Did you stick with it? I did. Because I, I watched the first, I think the first two or three. Yeah. God, it was terrible. I thought it was quite good. It was it was quite really? it was quite predictable in some of the way it panned yeah. out, but it was quite good as something just to binge watch over the space of a couple of days. But it did take me about three episodes to get my head around his British accent with me just thinking. Oh, and- I just kept thinking, why not cast a British guy or just make him an American guy living in Britain? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was, and his his accent was awful. I just thought he, it was yeah. really stolid. You know, he was, he was like this old Brian. Oh yeah, you know. But I'm like, I just, oh, mate, I just, just thought his he's not that much of a, a big of a pull as an actor. Surely that you can, yeah. you need to give him the British accent. It's not, really it's not weird. like it's this huge American actor. Or just say, <laughs> right, do a British accent, yeah. go in there and do that. It's just yeah. like somebody who was big a few years ago and and done much since. So just yeah. yeah. But anyway, it's odd, mm. odd choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, mate. You know, mate. John Krasinski's kind of one of those. He's not a mega star. You know, he quite a quiet place did well. Don't get me wrong, got a lot of buzz, but he's not like a massive leading man. Yeah. So I suppose you know it, it is one of those things. Just on the subject of that safe, I've got I've got to remember, got to remind you of this. The, the, in the first episode of that, there was there was a brilliant thing on Twitter not so long back. The first episode of that, there's a scene where Michael C. Hall's character is playing football, like with, with like his family and whatnot, like a party. And uh, he kicks the ball, right? It's just this end of this shot, right? You see from a distance. He kicks the ball and towards the net, but he hits the post, right? And he misses, but he reacts like he scored, right? And it's very clear that he he hit the post. And obviously they couldn't film it again. But you see, if you watch everyone else, they don't really know how to react because they're all supposed to go, yay! But then he's hit the post. So they think, oh, okay, the scene, they're going to have to refilm this, aren't they? But he's there going, woo, I've scored! (laughs) It's so obvious yeah. in the post. You just go back and watch it seriously because he had me in bits. I kept rewatching it like so much. It was just brilliant. <laughs> but anyway, that's a massive sidebar. But yeah, Jack uh, uh, Jack Ryan might be worth it. You know, yeah. we'll, um, we might see some stuff on set the tape about that and um, and check it out. So uh, so yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see. And welcome everyone to Free Play. Uh, this week we're back in the uh, book world of books, and um, I'm really pleased to be joined by a friend and podcaster uh, of mine from the uh, Trek FM uh, network, uh, the writer of Hitler's British Isles, a uh, book that's uh, recently come out um, all about the uh, history of the Channel Islands during the Second World War and the uh, surprising Nazi occupation of it. It's Duncan Barrett. It's great to have you on Set the Tape Rewind, Duncan. Thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure to podcast with you, Tony. It's it's been a while, but it's uh, good to get on mic again with you. Yeah, it's been. We realise it's been a few months, and uh, it's that's 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 a shame because I've stepped a little bit away from the Trek FM stuff right right now because of all the all the myriad things I'm doing. But it's nice to get you on. You've to, got uh, more pies than you have fingers, I think. So, you know. <laughs> that's a good analogy. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Yeah, I recently uh, went away to Thailand um, for my honeymoon, and uh, I read five books, one of which was Hitler's British Isles and uh, it had been uh, which you kindly sent me and it was something I've been really looking forward to reading so uh, I've given it a, a sort of very brief outline there but do you want to briefly talk about the ultimately what what really is in the book before we talk more about it 
Yeah, I mean, basically, the the book is essentially just a history of the occupation of the Channel Islands during the Second World War. Um, and I think a lot of people in mainland Britain, I mean, certainly when I was... Uh, I mean, I did uh, GCSE and A-level history at school and we learned all about the Nazis. We learned all about the Second World War. We learned, I think, a bit about the occupation in France. But literally no one ever mentioned that there was British territory that was occupied by the Germans in the war. So really, for me, it was just a case of, you know, first of all, finding out more about that history, because I didn't go into this book knowing a huge amount about it, really. Uh, and then bringing that to a kind of mainland audience, because I spent um, about three months in the Channel Islands, mainly in Guernsey, but kind of hopping back and forth to Germany. Jersey and Sark as well a couple of years ago interviewing people about the occupation about what it was like then um, and over there they're so sort of steeped in the occupation I mean they literally can't get away from it because you know every beach has these bunkers still left there because they're, they're too much effort to uh, to demolish basically you know the, the occupation is kind of living history for them um, but really I wanted to just kind of bring some of that back home with me bring some of that back over to the mainland and kind of let people know what it was like because I think as English people um, this is quite an important part of our history of the war that we've sort of uh, kind of decided to forget about. I would say also it's something we didn't even we don't even really know about you know certainly I mean mm. not in massive terms I mean it's something I don't ever remember studying at school it's something I never really came across until I heard about your book you know and then I read all, all the history certainly within it Mm. You know, I, I didn't even know that this had happened. I mean, I, I'm I, I, I'm sure there are plenty of people who are probably older than me who did know that, you know, and it's not necessarily something that's obscure, obscure, but it's certainly, I don't think, something for my generation and, and certainly the generations under me, uh, uh, us, it, it's something that's necessarily massively well-known. And it was a, it's a fascinating slice of history because, you know, these people really went through something on the Channel Islands that... Brit the British mainland were terrified of and it never never really experienced and it was it's a really fascinating mix of quite you know surprising stories about what the Nazis on those islands were really like and some horrific tales which sort of feel a little bit more like the the things we've heard over the years in you know some of the countries that were occupied so it's 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 a surprising but I found it very surprising yeah, it is a strange mixture, I suppose, the kind of occupation stories. And I'd say, I mean, when I was researching this book, I interviewed, I think it was about 106, 107 people. Uh, and everyone has a different story. And there, there are some things that everyone can kind of agree on. But one of the reasons that I like to work like this, I mean, the kind of history that I do is very much history through the experiences of ordinary people. And I try to interview mm -hmm. as many people as I can find and to gather as many stories as possible, partly to so that I'm able to kind of reflect that breadth of experience, because you know, no two people had the same experience for those five years. Some people found it wasn't too bad, you know, or they found the Germans weren't too bad. They got on very well with the ones that, you know, were living locally. I mean, some had them in their houses, you know, and they kind of had to make friends with yeah. them to some extent. You know, others remained implacably opposed to them, experienced, uh, you know, kind of an element of cruelty from them. I mean, typically compared to, say, the occupation in France, compared to the occupation in Holland and so on, it was not a brutal regime. I mean, from the top down, it was it was what was known as a model occupation. It was intended as a kind of soft occupation um, with the idea that it was a stepping stone to the occupation of mainland Britain and that they wanted to kind of prove the Germans were very keen to prove that they could be sort of just occupiers in a sense to sort of make a good impression it was sort of a, a PR exercise mm. on the other hand uh, there was a real shortage of food life did get very difficult there were whenever something flared up whenever there was any kind of resistance or kind of um, 
not even resistance, but sort of uh, misbehaviour, I suppose, uh, they would have to react. So there would be a kind of clampdown of some form or other. And obviously that relationship, as much as they were kind of, the Germans were trying to preserve a sort of good relationship, it would get strained at various points. And as the war went on, for most people, it got tougher and tougher, you know, all the way through, really, up until the point they were liberated. Yeah, and it, it struck me that it sort of ebb and flow of, of how how the Germans were on the islands and how they were with the uh, different islanders and how it sort of it's shifted a bit. I mean, really, I think, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like the book spends probably more time on in Guernsey than it probably does in Jersey a little bit, or that's, that's how it came across to me. And then the fact that Sark, even though it's a tiny little island, really has its own unique mm. sort of place within it. Um, so it, it, did you find that there were more there were more stories sort of on Guernsey or was it fairly evenly spread? I mean, I I made the same amount of effort on all the islands to find as many people to speak to as I could. I was living on Guernsey, so it may be partly that, that I kind of mm. made more contact there. I sort of got to know more people on Guernsey. I got to know the local media better there, so I was able to sort of put the word out that way. Um, whereas Jersey, mm. basically, because I moved my whole family over, you know, myself, my partner, my son, my two dogs, we were all living in Guernsey for three months, and then I was kind of mm. island hopping from there. Um, so if there is that kind of bias in the book, that, that might be part of it. I think there's also a sense, though, that, for me anyway, my impression coming there as an outsider was that the history of the occupation is much is a bigger part of kind of daily life in Guernsey than it is in Jersey, maybe. And that's not to say that they've kind mm. of forgotten about it in Jersey or it's not important, but Jersey is a big you know, it's it's substantially bigger island. It sort of feels like there's a lot more going on. It feels a bit more of a kind of mm. modern place, um somehow. So I think maybe what I my sense was that people in Guernsey it, it was more something that was in important to them to talk about you, you, you know not to say that that wasn't the case in jersey for the people i did speak to but it seemed like it was a bigger deal there um sark absolutely a very small community and i was quite lucky there i had um a local woman who sort of got in touch with me and offered to help me and basically organized a whole uh, itinerary of interviews for me with all her local contacts right. that she'd been you know making friends with over the years and sort of twisted their arms to talk to me so i did manage to speak to probably a disproportionately high number of people on such a tiny island uh, because I had someone locally kind of making the introductions for me. So, you know, that definitely helped. Yeah, and, and quite a lot of people who was who were either there, you know, or, or, or people who knew people who were connected to it. I mean, I was really struck by Werner Rang and yeah. his wife's story. I mean, mm. that and, and to, it's very sad at the end to find out they died very recently, you know, over the over a span of a few months connected. And they were like, very close to the hundred mark at that point yeah. so it must have been incredible to speak to to speak to them and get their recollections because the story of Werner especially is is a really fascinating one as as a Nazi who falls in love with Sark and falls in love with a, a, a woman there it's quite a beautiful story in, in in the midst of this very dark little chapter as well it is yeah I mean it's a very romantic story I think and um and there were romantics. I mean, there were romances that happened and there were a handful that endured. I mean, mm. I'd say most of the kind of wartime romances died the death uh, as soon as the war ended. But yeah, Werner and Phyllis was an unusual one insofar as, um, you know, he was absolutely besotted with her. Do you know what I mean? It was it was really kind of pretty much love at first sight and a love that mm. lasted, as you say, through to the end of their lives, you know, in their 90s. Um, I think for him, one of the things that struck me about him, though, as well, was that as much as he fell in love with Phyllis, this local girl, he also fell in love with Sark. You know, I mean, he his eyes lit up when yeah. he talked to me about 
what it was like coming there for the first time. Um, the Germans described Sark as uh, a little paradise. And for anyone who's never been to the Channel Islands or never been to Sark in particular, I mean, the Channel Islands are really stunning. I mean, they're, they're British territory, um, but they are really beautiful islands. I mean, if you think of, you know, say Cornwall, you're kind of um, getting onto the right track. But the fact that they're quite small, the fact that they are islands means, you know, you've got this stunning coast all the way around beautiful kind of natural geography uh, and Sark in particular is very magical because it is very tiny it's very kind of old-fashioned traditional place I mean even if you go there today there are no cars on the island so the roads such as there are are kind of dirt tracks basically and you and you notice as soon as you mm. get there how quiet it is how it has this kind of different atmosphere how there are more insects there are more birds you know because you don't have any pollution you don't have any of that it is like a sort of um well, like an island paradise, like Werner described it. Mm. And I think for a lot of the Germans coming to the Channel Islands in general, that was an element of it, was just falling in love with the stunning scenery, uh, with these, you know, beautiful villages, with the kind of generally quite friendly... I mean, I think the people in the Channel Islands, and particularly somewhere like Sark, which is so tiny, you know, there is a real kind of community spirit and there is a real kind of um, culture of uh, being friendly and generous to outsiders and, and these kind of things. And in a way... As much as the Germans were sort of technically the enemy, uh, while the islands were occupied, you know, there wasn't really any fighting going on or whatever. And they kind of benefited to some extent from that just sort of natural human warmth in a way. Yeah, and it's made, I tell you what, it made me, it's made me really want to go. I mean, you should, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the shame you've just had of... your honeymoon. You should, uh... <laughs> I, mean, I don't <laughs> I know. know if they can quite compete with the Thai beach, but, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of charm there, definitely. It probably would have been a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest, definitely there. a lot cheaper, yeah. But, Absolutely, and and I think that's what one of the things that really really get out of the book. You not only get this really interesting chapter, especially you know if you're a fan of Second World War history. I mean, some, I, I I am, you know, I really like reading about mm. all that stuff, and it felt like a little corner of that, you know, story that you you didn't you didn't know, you know, from a perspective you didn't know. And I think, you know, you really, it really I think the book really brings out the that, and it brings out the beauty of the place. You know, you really get a feel for the place. You feel like you're quite immersed in the setting so i think i think you can tell you live there you know because you seem to really breathe it in in the book and it seemed to really sort of imbue the words i think so it's um it's it's a it's a like i said it's a surprising book in the sense of of, of the kind of story it tells and i i think i i, I can understand potentially why why it appealed to you you know to tell this this chapter well, it, it certainly appealed to me. It's a story that's always appealed to me ever since. I can't remember when I first actually heard about the occupation, but as I say, it certainly wasn't when I was learning history at school. Uh, and it always kind of stuck in my mind as sort of, oh, what a fascinating topic. I'd love to kind of, you know, learn more about that. I'd love to go there and talk to those people. Mm. Um, and I suppose it made sense for me because I've written quite a few books about the Second World War and in particular the home front uh, in Britain of the Second World War um, and what that was like for people. And in a way, I think the Channel Island story is kind of the ultimate home front story because you've got all the kind of, uh, you've got that sort of blitz spirit. I mean, they weren't literally being blitzed over mm. there, apart from one brief and quite shocking incident at the very start Mm. just before the occupation they didn't really have that to contend with but they had all these other problems of you know food shortages and and sort of general anxiety about what was going on in the war and and kind of um just having to kind of get through it having to make do having to find some way of feeding the family having to find some way of you know providing clothes for the family all those kind of things that people on the home front in britain went through but then they've also got the fact that, you know, the enemy are literally living next door or in some cases living in their spare mm. room. And this whole sort of dilemma <laughs> of, you know, how how much do you kind of preserve that kind of 
idea of patriotic uh, distance when actually the person that you know you're sort of you've been taught that you're supposed to hate is very polite and charming and on mm. their best behavior and you know is bringing around presents for your children because they miss their own children at home you know how long do you kind of keep up that pretense that we're not all just human beings you know sort of trying to get on with our lives and i think in the channel islands also i should probably just to be clear, um, pretty much every one of those hundred odd people I interviewed said this. One of the things that nearly everyone said the same thing was, well, we had the Germans, they weren't really Nazis. And I think there is certainly yeah. A, a, yeah. a great degree of truth in that, in that the troops who ended up there were not necessarily ardent, you know, card carrying national socialists. Mm. A lot of them were not that keen on the, you know, not to say that they wanted to lose the war, but they weren't that committed to winning it. They felt they were quite lucky. They'd got this very cushy posting. There was no fighting there. You know, it was kind of mm. um, sort of ideal posting if you were a conscript in the army who didn't really want to go off to Russia and, you know, die in the snow or, or <laughs> have to kill people or whatever. Um, yeah. So not only were they on their best behaviour because they'd been told to behave, but they were kind of uh, immediately put in a good mood by this beautiful posting that they'd been sent to and kind of aware that they had lucked out really to be sent there. You know, that complication is there in terms of you know the, the, who the Germans were and like you say that division between the, a German and a Nazi and, mm. and, and everything like that. So you know it really comes across in the book. It's it's a it's a really interesting book. It's 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 a great slice of history. I think anyone who has an interest in in certainly in Second World War history and history in general, and particularly from a social perspective, because it is all these little you know moments in people's lives that connect up and then re- revisited and things like that. It's it's a re- it's a really nice charming book. That will, you know, uncover a, a, an area of history I don't think you will potentially know. So I would, I recommend it hugely, and I think uh, I think I think it's a great little book which is available now from on Amazon and you know in all good bookshops really, isn't it? And uh, I think you can pick it up pretty widely. Should be, yeah. I mean, if your bookshop doesn't have it, ask them why not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hopefully you should, should be able to pick it up in most bookshops at the moment. Uh, it's also on Audible. If you if you go to Audible, you can even have me reading it, which is, you know, might oh, yeah. be a dubious pleasure. But, you know, I don't know about you. I, I personally, I, I was amazed when you said you read five books on the in the course of your honeymoon. I, I find these days I just have so little time for actually sitting down and reading. I do most of my reading uh, through audio books these days. So, you know. I, I had, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I had the virtue of um, being in, a, in a, a villa with a pool and, you know, mm-hmm. hours and hours in which my, my wife, my wife and I just sat there reading and it was just wonderful for a week. So I, and I read fairly fast. So I was able to barrel through quite a few, uh, which never happens at home. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you're fighting for the time to do it. So it was, it was, it was lovely. It was an idyllic place to read uh, a book like this and get ra- soaked up by it. Yeah. So um, that's what I'll have to yeah. do next. I have to find an excuse to, to write a book about <laughs> Thailand and <laughs> go and live there for three months <laughs> yeah. instead of yeah. live on the beach. Do that. Just write, yeah. write books about the most exotic, beautiful places in the world. There you go. Yeah. Sorted. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Duncan. It's been uh, it's been really nice to speak to you about this book and uh, my uh, all the success in the world for it. Cause it. It really deserves to be read widely. So thanks a lot. Oh, thank you, Tony. Well, it's a pleasure to speak to you again. That's time on another edition of Set the Tape Rewind. We'll be back in two weeks for more of the same. But until then, don't forget to check us out on Facebook and on Twitter at Set the Tape. And of course, you can find all our articles features and reviews at www.setthetape.com until next time thanks as always for tuning in
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.